While the need for smart home devices is pretty straightforward, the user experience has most often turned out to be the complete opposite. Smart bulbs, thermostats, security lock systems. Should different brands always mean one should use different apps to control them? Oof. Why would people call it smart tech even? Welcome to the podcast. I'm Aishwarya, your host. Today's guest is on a mission to make smart home products easy to use, helping you make total sense of the technology mayhem. Let's welcome Yana Velendo, the co-founder and CEO of Craftful, a Y Combinator-backed startup that's focused on bringing better usability to connected products. Yana is also the San Francisco chapter lead for the Women in Product community. Hey, Yana, I'm excited to be chatting with you today. Wonderful to speak with you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Great. So um, your career started in tech law with you leading a legal strategy and a policy team. From that to product management is quite lead. So what brought you into this side of building products? Sure, yeah, I think there's a lot of different steps that ultimately brought me to, to product. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, yeah, as, as you said, I started, I started my career in, in law. I studied actually public international law um, at, at London School of Economics. I was really interested in, in things like you know, war crimes, wanted to become a human rights barrister, um, like <laughs> wear a wig to court every day. <laughs> um, but then wow. after, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's wild to think about. Um, but then, uh, you know, after I graduated, um, I became a, a, a business litigator, but I pretty early realized that I wasn't really interested in being like a regular lawyer. I was much more interested in redesigning law to work better for for people and so um after after practicing for a few years i i went back to school i went i got a academic law degree from from harvard and then um, i did a short stint as a as a law professor um essentially Mm -hmm. researching how legal notices could be replaced with user experience um, to more intuitively communicate information to people through interaction with technology Um, and then I uh, joined Wikimedia and in, in, in there I was fortunate to actually get to apply some of my research to billions of people who use Wikipedia. Um, and also I think being at a place like, like Wikimedia I had the opportunity to work on lots of different things. Um, and so I, I had the opportunity to drive uh, Wikimedia's transition to HTTPS, uh, which was a major product initiative um, ended up being mm-hmm. one of our most successful launches. And I also got to um, lead a team of, of, of product managers, designers, and other kinds of managers um, at the organization to come up with strategic direction for Wikipedia readership uh, a product, uh, essentially, based mm-hmm. on internal and external data. Um, so I think I, I, I ended up transitioning into product in a very organic way. Uh, taking on responsibility that was technically technically not part of my job description um, in 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 doing that work well and in and also realizing that that's sort of the type of impact that I was interested in having you know right so I think uh, a lot of what you said um, you know intrigued me because I, I especially love the way you said redefining law and um, improving the user experience of legal notices you know because both of these statements are um, are very unique. I mean, I'm hearing it for the first time to somebody who wants to take law to redesign that and somebody who connects law uh, with uh, a user experience, which is usually for tech products. 
I think mm-hmm. uh, I, I I also admire the way that you sort of had that very subtle transition from say handling data from a very legal perspective to taking up product responsibilities, as you said, organically. So I think uh, this this definitely brings forward a lot of um, you know possibilities that. Uh, not always all pm careers need to have one sort of a way right i think whatever works for each of them to get into that product space it's it's mostly what or where they belong so i think yours is definitely a, a best example for that thank you thank you right since you said you had worked earlier with uh, design engineers material scientists and those developers and literally like you know like uh, an eclectic set of people so let me touch upon some of your earlier experiences at Carbon and IFTTT. You first worked at Carbon for um, disrupting manufacturing with 3D models in production, and then at IFTTT, uh, you had the experience of discovering the magic of connecting different apps. Sort of again varied experiences for you. So, what are some key learnings that you picked up from uh, working with some of these people in these companies? Yeah. Um, those are great examples. I think um, wh- one thing that I that I learned from building products with both hardware, software, and materials at, at Carbon, um, and then again working with hardware companies that were all using IFT as as their integrations platform, is that sort of the development processes are very different for different types of products. Um, so. Mm-hmm particularly companies that are that are used to shipping hardware and physical things have a really hard time with uh, quick iteration, partly because, you know, it's just not practical when, when your development cycles are really long and partly because they, they traditionally um, didn't have readily available data from users that would be helpful right. for that type of iteration process. Um, and so, you know, as, as we know, of course, you know, it's, iteration is critical for building good software and, and good digital experiences. So Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's something that, that we at Craft will bring to to hardware companies. I think an, another thing that I that I learned um, is that as a, as a PM, you want to quickly be able to become subject matter ex- expert on your industry, um, and you you mm-hmm. know you do that by doing lots of research, talking to the development team, and talking to all of the, these different types of uh, you know experts in in their space, and also talking with customers, and then. Having done that process myself a few times, um, I learned that you know when when I later was hiring PMs, um, I wasn't necessarily looking for subject matter experts, but someone who could quickly become a subject matter expert. So like having right. that learning mindset uh, is essentially much much stronger indicator that someone will do everything to find out the customer's pain points and and be able to drive the team, the development team towards solving that 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 right those kind of right set of problems, essentially. And I think one the, the last thing I would say that I've, that I've uh, mm-hmm. learned in, in, in these different types of roles is that I think there's very few product development processes or frameworks that are helpful for, for every possible product or team. So it's kind of, it's, as a PM, it's good to know different processes and frameworks um, and um, have those essentially kind of like as a knowledge base to pull inspiration from, but you really mm-hmm. want to be very focused on, on the problem you're solving. So if there's an existing process or, or framework that that solves that that problem in an ideal way, that's awesome, great. Um, but I think it's going to be very <laughs> rare. So um, so kind of it, for for myself as a PM and and, and the teams I've managed, I've been very mm-hmm. focused on 
you know, rarely applying a process or a framework with the, without at least like modifying it in very significant ways to to the situation. I'd say those are probably some of the some some of the bigger learnings that that have come up across the board. Definitely, I think those uh, really make sense. At the end of the day, I think it boils down to one particular thing, which is the problem is something that's common for both hardware or you know software uh, as an industry. And for that, like you mentioned, you can use different frameworks, you can use different uh, methods to solve for it. But I guess the decision making is something that's going to be pretty different. But otherwise, the problem in which you're solving for, that's going to remain uh, pretty much as, as the same for both of these, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, focusing focusing on the problem is kind of the, the, the number one thing and in, in doing as much as much work as you can to understand the, the the users and the customers. I think that's that's always going to be true across the board, um, whether, whether yeah. it's hardware, software, materials, or really anything else. Totally. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think that's the, the crux of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's move on to talking about Craftful, uh, which is your current startup. And that aims to transform the way people interact with the physical world. And I see that clearly usability is very much different from utility of these products. And you're trying to prove that with Craftful. So how did this idea come upon to you of, of building a tool like this? Yeah, so I think I mean, there's a lot of different things. I think particularly in interacting with a lot of the hardware companies that were on the IFT platform and understanding their um, their pain points. Um, and I think to me, at some point, I just had this realization that a good good analogy to where we are right now with the smart home industry today is basically where the the smartphone industry was, you know, back in 2007 before before the iPhone. Like in early 2007, it was really hard to imagine that like 50% of the U.S. adults would would carry around a small computer in their back pocket within five years, right? Um, and yeah. I, I remember that time I, I had um, this BlackBerry that I had for work that I really hated. Um, and and I couldn't imagine using that if you know if I didn't have to use it for work. But then as soon as I got an iPhone like that later that year, um, I think it became obvious that this is this is actually a device that people will want to use voluntarily in their spare time. And then obviously Android um, similarly came out later. Um, but I think that's that's basically where we are with connected products today. Like the biggest thing holding them back uh, is that they are terrible to use, kind of like the BlackBerry was before iPhone. Um, and there's lots of kind of like almost systemic reasons for why these products are terrible to use. And mostly it comes down to the fact that the hardware companies that are building uh, these products don't have software resources. There, there's no good off-the-shelf software solutions they can use. And um, I think the other thing is that historically these companies have been mostly electronic companies building things like thermostats, lights, locks. Um, but really mm -hmm. as, as the price of connectivity is plummeting, Lots of other kinds of companies um, that make consumer products like furniture, toys, you know, clothing are all thinking about the use cases they can unlock by putting a chipset into their products. They're even further removed from from software development. Um, so I think like the connected product space uh, that people think about is really the tip of the iceberg, and we're quick, quickly moving to a world where everything around us could be a connected product, and in that world. I think it's really important that connected products can become usable by everyone, like regardless of age, gender, education. Um, so as we're moving to that world, we really can't afford to design connected products that you need a technical head of a household to connect 
because that's <laughs> going to disempower too many people. Um, and that's that's essentially those are some of the exciting challenges we we solve at Craftful. We're building a platform that makes it easy to build, usable, and therefore useful connected things. Absolutely. Um, so from what I understand, it's that uh, today with respect to manufacturing these uh, smart home devices, I think the let, let's take them as two different teams, the hardware team that comes up with setting up those chips and trying to make the, the physicality of the product and the software team that tries to set up the controls. I, I absolutely understand from what you mean that the hardware and the software team sort of works not in parallel, but mostly, you know, and as isolated teams. So. Uh, it, it so happens that most of the importance goes into how the product looks and behaves, but not really in terms of the actual control that it's supposed to handle. So when it comes to a consumer's end, I think they are, that's why flustered as to, oh my God, should I click this for it to do this action? Or should I be uh, tapping here for it to um, show me this particular screen? So I guess I, I uh, definitely agree with you in saying that the whole connected system needs to be very inclusive of people of different cultural people and of people from different geographies uh, who have mm -hmm. a very, very different way of interacting with these devices. So I think there's definitely a, a very uh, interesting future ahead for uh, for what you're working on. So I'm, I'm really excited. Thank you. Yeah, we're su super excited about all the all the different challenges ahead. Um, I think there's there's a lot of, you know, we've gotten to a place where it's become really, really easy to launch software because there's there are actually quite a lot of off-the-shelf software solutions you can use but that is just yeah. not true for hardware today so it's just a very different yeah. place yeah no i think uh, somewhere from what we're discussing now with respect to hardware and software uh, th that methodology being so disparate in terms of manufacturing these smart home devices uh, i think what craftful is doing is that it's coming up with a no-code platform with a lot of these interactive components that could be used by everyone, right? So uh, why do you think it's going to be easy for somebody, let's say, uh, who has zero software knowledge or perhaps like very, very limited software knowledge to just sort of use this uh, thing that they come up with Craftful and control, say, uh, different branded products in their house? Because, you know, a thermostat can be from, say, Google Nest, whereas their uh, smart security system may be from some other brand. How is Craftful going to be helping this person who has little or zero uh, software knowledge? Yeah, so the like there's 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 a, there's a, there's two different um, types of personas we're thinking about. One is the customer persona um, that will you know either have some software knowledge to be able to use the platform, or we leverage someone who does right um, mm -hmm. to to be able to use the software to build a connected product. The end users. Um, you know, should have should have zero or should should need zero, I should say, software experience to operate things. And, the, um, and for them, it, it it really becomes like the our our problem set becomes how do we make it incredibly intuitive to to operate um, the, your product, uh, and regardless of you know which which hardware product it is, um, how do we make sure that we tap into the things that people already know from outside that product? So things that mm -hmm. they know from operating their home generally and the physical physical um, things in their space and the things they know from operating other kinds of digital experiences. So everything they know from using their phone, using using apps on their phone for other things. Uh, like we want to bring in a lot of that, um, that background knowledge and, and tap into that. So we're really trying to 
uh, build experiences that are intuitive to people with, so that we're minimizing their learning curve when, when they're interacting with a craftful, a craftful powered experience. Certainly, I think that makes so much sense. And um, like we touched upon that um, concept of bringing more inclusivity into the usage, you know, as for every day at home. I think this sort of bridges that uh, because the person knows that they can use one particular system to control a lot of things that are happening in their house. And it's something that they can trust on. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think uh, that's that's good. Since we're talking about a lot of this uh, in, in terms of uh, people using it on a day to day basis, I also want to touch upon uh, the tech law side of it, which you know, you have a very much strong base on. Is there something uh, around ethical tech that you think product managers or entrepreneurs need to keep in mind for uh, designing responsible products? Let's say that you gather some of these experiences from Craftful or coming up with this uh, product as it is. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's I, you know I think it's really um, empowering thing um, about being an entrepreneur or a PM is that you can truly you know change the world and build the future <laughs> you want to see. But then that power comes with with great responsibility. Um, so in that role, you are one of the people responsible for the future. So you absolutely do want to you know you you don't want to apply a mindset where you're just building whatever people will pay money for as long as it's you know not illegal right like instead you want to you want to really think about um the impact of you know what you're building uh from from basically from from day one i think i ideally and this is something we've thought a lot about at craftful in terms of formulating our values um it, you know i i want to make sure that we're building something that is primarily intended to help people i think if you have a mission like that in mind, I think it will. It is easier to uncover and address unintended consequences as as they come up. Um, and so I think, like you know, uh, first of all, just just focusing on having having a mission that that's focused on um, doing good in the world, and then that will help <laughs> uncover the the unintended potential unintended bad consequences as, as you go. That was spot on. So um, the way I see it is that you start with something as shared goal as to keep the product more um, uh, a value driven or a value sensitive design tool, right? Um, you want to mm -hmm. go with something, the entire product wants to promote something that's more of a value than uh, and, and, and the purpose entirely ties upon this value. So I think that's uh, that's a brilliant idea. Great, yeah. No, I, I, I think, I, and I, and I think there's a lot of companies that are that are doing that right now, uh, which, which, which is really exciting to see. Yeah, yeah. I think there was a phase when uh, the whole human-centered design was very popular, and everybody wanted to design something that's, uh, and they called themselves as, uh, yeah, we're designers who are designing human-centered products. But I think right now there's a bit more uh, emphasis on value-driven or value-sensitive design, which is to ensure that whatever you're building is very responsible, is very mm -hmm. uh, diverse, is very inclusive for people to uh, use it every day. So I think uh, yeah. that's definitely uh, uh, that's definitely some improvement that we see in the tech world. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great point of uh, kind of how, how you framed it <laughs> just there. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so uh, the next thing that I wanted to touch upon was uh, this particular thing that you had co-created, something called as collab mark policy which is for collaborative, uh, free-cultured communities. And this was also adopted by uh, Wikipedia, Node.js, OpenStreetMap. 
could you tell me how different it is from the usual for the, the terminology that we know which is trademark how is collab mark policy different from a trademark policy yeah absolutely i think um like generally speaking actually trademarks are very different in, in in their own right from other kinds of ip rights like like patents and copyright because they don't just protect like an idea or representation of an idea they actually protect like the association between a mark and the mm -hmm. in the product that a business has built up in like users mind through their activity so it is actually in that sense much more aligned with business um mm -hmm. you know you, you can't just protect a, a brand the way you would protect an idea generally you need to do a lot of work to make sure that that brand is is recognizable um and because mm -hmm. you you've built up that association between the brand and, and your business you then want to prevent others from from using that same brand this is this is actually kind of how how it relates to to collab mark um but <laughs> you know it, um in, you want to make sure that's that 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 people aren't using that same brand in relation to their businesses because that use essentially breaks down the association in people's mind. Um, so that's why, um, you know, it can be a really exciting thing for a business when people start think, saying things like, oh, why don't you just Google that when, when they mean like looking things up on the internet? But that's actually mm -hmm. stressful for the legal team because it could mean that, you know, your, your trademark is becoming more generic. Uh, and so you could yeah. lose that legal protection. And I think some examples of that is like, escalator right like escalator used to be a trademark um for like the first company that made escalators but now just means an escalator right <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah but then um so that so that traditional concept of, of of trademark or that traditional trademark model breaks down when you're dealing with free culture communities because there isn't a single source that a brand represents in fact by definition you have lots of people on the internet contributing to mm -hmm. the project, be that like an open source uh, code project or something like Wikipedia. Um, and all of those contributors want to be able to talk about their association to that brand, both because, you know, they feel certain pride in contributing to the project and to be able to recruit more contributors. So it really goes to the very core of how open source and uh, free culture communities grow. And so as a result, trademark, there's, there's quite common to have trademark disputes in, in these types of communities. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, there was one in, in the Wikimedia community uh, right, right around the time when I joined Wikimedia. And so one of the things I did after joining was to develop a policy with, uh, with the community through like a seven month long online discussion. And internally, we did lots of work researching essentially like the le legal limits of, of trademark law. Um, and we also talked with the community members to, um, to, to find kind of the, the right balance between protecting the brand against abuse by folks who aren't actually contributing to the community while making sure mm -hmm. that like, it's really, really easy for all of the community members to use the brand for everything that they need. Um, and so we, we developed that, that Wikimedia policy under creative commons license, which means that, that Technically, everyone can reuse it under the same license. And then Colab Mark policy itself is really a side project that I did with my friend and, and coworker, Stephen Laporte, where we templatized that policy to make it even easier to adopt for other communities, which is essentially why, why it later got picked up by other communities, which is really exciting. <laughs>
Yeah, uh, I think today I learned something new about uh, the difference between trademark and collab mark because um, since we know what copyright issue is and and why would somebody want to file for a trademark? I think periodically we've always known that whether or not it's an idea or a company, it's always applying for a trademark to ensure that your rights are protected and and there's uh, no invasion of privacy there. But I, I think collab mark makes more sense, uh, especially the way that you said that it's for. Community-driven uh, brands, uh, and Wikipedia was one right example for that. And today we see a lot of such open-source, uh, community-driven, no-code uh, uh, sort of platforms. So I think this is something that can help uh, a lot of new founders as well, so that it saves them time uh, to get into legal hassles and you know get into the nitty-gritty of finding out, oh, uh, should I do this for protecting myself legally? Should I be doing that? I think this this forms a good start for them then. Absolutely. Yeah. No, this is like this is the really cool thing about doing things that are freely licensed is that it can then be easily reused uh, and and ho hopefully hopefully save people a lot of time and headache. Totally, totally. I'm so glad you did this. Right. Um, so um, I'm also fascinated to know that, you know, as much as you're a product leader by day, you're also an artist by night and you also lead the women in product uh, San Francisco chapter. Those are like quite some stuff to handle on a daily basis. How do you see some of these experiences shape your personality and help you bring a lot of ideas forward? Yeah, I think, well, well, first of all, to kind of to, to the, uh, to, to the women in products, uh, San Francisco, um, which, which I'm really grateful for the opportunity to, to co-lead uh, that group. I think as a, as a product manager and, and later as the head of product, I always, mostly been like the only woman in, in the room in, in most of kind of my, my, my work meetings. Um, and so being part of something like women in product, which is, you know, like and you're also, you, which you, you're also part of, and it's a community of over um, 30,000 product managers and, and leaders around the world. Yeah. That, that's just incredibly powerful and makes you feel like you're not alone in the world, even though on a daily basis, it often feels like you are. Um, and um, I should say um, that that's probably been just kind of a, an incredible support network for me. Um, when it comes to um, art, and you know, like you mentioned, I, I, I do. I think in, in some online profiles, talk about myself as an artist by night, though um, <laughs> that's probably something more I've done as a product manager than I get to do now. Now as a founder, um, but I think. You know, art is something that's always been a big part of my life. Like half half my family are artists or architects. My mom is an architect. Wow. Now. Um, her mom is a landscape architect. I think I, I started drawing and, and designing at a very early age. Um, art art and design is is both like a great source of inspiration for my product work, um, but it's also how I like relax and, and decompress. I think some of my most stressful experiences have made their way into like a painting or a drawing at, at different points in time. And I think it just keeps me sane, particularly as a now as a as the founder um, and, and focused on the kind of the problems I'm solving. That's that's nice. And I think you should definitely continue art then uh, looking at the way that you really um, spend so much time as, as a product manager. I really wish you find uh, some time off uh, even as a founder to get back to uh, doing some of the art stuff. I'm an artist myself, so uh, I, I would definitely want you to get back to it. Nice, yeah. Right, yeah. So um, the next part, and that's going to be our concluding part of the podcast, is a rapid-fire round. 
I've got three questions for you. And um, I, you know, these, these are questions where you don't have to think at all. So I'm just going to like shoot them over. And then I want you to answer like very quickly. Mm -hmm. So the first one, um, if you want to buy coffee, which is like, you know, spend some time with somebody from the tech circle, who would it be? Yeah, so I think it's 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 different people at different times. Um, right now, it would be someone like like Whitney Heard of, of Bumble. I think you know she's overcome so much and gotten so far, and I would love to better understand how you know what what drives someone like her and how how to do that, <laughs> basically. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I think uh, I'm going to join that uh, that coffee date of yours. So I'm just going to bombard it and come there and say, because mm -hmm. she's she's one inspiration for me as well. And, and, and in fact, in the recent times, I was wondering if there's a chance to meet her, you know, what would I want to ask her? So definitely mm -hmm. that's, that's a great <laughs> Right. Um, so the second question is, do you rather write a book or start a newsletter? Oh, definitely a newsletter. I personally think most books, <laughs> I mean, like non-fictional books, I should say, are somewhat broken because um, oftentimes they discuss an idea that would have, you know, been better represented in like a like a blog post. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm I'm personally I'm all about writing very concise written communication. So mm -hmm. I I'd much rather <laughs> start a newsletter, even though that's a little bit more of like a long-term commitment. Right. No, but definitely for chunks of information, like what you would want to write, I think uh, a newsletter is going to be a great start. So all the best. I think I'm going to see a newsletter from Yana very soon. <laughs> yeah. So um, thanks a lot, Yana. I think today's conversation was extremely fun. And for me, a lot uh, insightful and enlightening as well, because I learned a lot in terms of um, transitioning from what you call a tech policy into product management and understanding the difference between uh, software and hardware product management and also understanding uh, what is IoT and connected products doing to people today and how can they ease the entire uh, user experience with a tool like Craftful. So I'm so excited for uh, you and uh, your co-founder and I really want to see a lot of things that uh, Craftful is doing in the next uh, upcoming months and years. So uh, congrats and thanks a lot for being uh, in my show today. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really enjoyed this conversation.